This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, the show that talks all things outdoors in Paul Bunyan Country, or as we like to call it, paradise. Well, last week on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, we got to hear from Jeff Gustafson winning his first Bassmaster Elite Tournament. Today, we get to hear from another Bassmaster winner, Keith Tuma. Won a Bassmaster Open down in Florida. He's a great bass angler out of the Brainerd area. We'll hear from him later. And we will hear from Steve Sapaniak of Predator Guide Service on the Mille Lacs area bite. But up first, we get to go back and talk to uh, some good friends from Bemidji State University. We talked to the wildlife biology folks a few weeks ago. Now we get to talk uh, to the aquatic biology folks. And among the people that we're going to have on the show today are Dr. Andrew Hafes, a professor of biology, Dr. Uh, Richard Cook, and Dr. Debbie Gilda. They are professors of aquatic biology. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Hi there. Thank you. It's great to have you guys on the show today. Um, of course, Andy is no stranger to Paul Bunyan Country. He He's been our Ask the Aquatic Biologist guy for a number of years now. So we'll start with Andy. Andy, tell us a little bit about what you do at Bemidji State University. I'm an aquatic biology professor at Bemidji State University. I've been there about nine years now. Uh, I love being on the radio show with you, Kevin. It's always a great time. Uh, my specialty there at BSU is really focused on fisheries. So I teach like fish management, ichthyology, which is the study of fish, uh, I also teach limnology regularly, which is a study of inland lakes and waters. And so all things water and fish really is my specialty. I also really enjoy uh, doing research, and I have, I think, seven graduate students right now that I'm mentoring through research projects that are in collaboration with uh, multiple agencies around the state. Debbie, what about you? Okay, um, my name is Dr. Debbie Gilda, and I've been at BSU for 20 years, and I kind of cringe when I say that, 20 (laughs) years. And I am the invertebrate zoologist there. And, and what that means is if it, if it does not have a backbone, I study it. So things like zooplankton and really, really exciting things like worms and snails and clams and all those type of things. And then I also study streams and rivers. So where Andy does lakes, I do streams and rivers. And uh, the courses that I teach at BSU are things such as freshwater invertebrates, again, the study of invertebrates, and then I teach also stream and river ecology. And, Rick, what about you? I'm uh, Rick Cook. I am uh, been at BSU for uh, about 20 years now as well. Um, my specialty is in wetlands ecology and aquatic plants. Um, I uh, teach everything from, uh, you know, general biology to a um, – general ecology, um, then especially courses in, in wetlands and plants and, and marine biology as well. The um, the aquatic biology program at Bemidji State, much like the wildlife biology program, has really grown in, uh, in popularity and uh, has a pretty good reputation around the nation. Um, how... How many years have we actually had a wildlife biology, or I mean, rather an aquatic biology major at Bemidji State? I'll take a stab at that one. I don't know how correct I am. Okay. Um, I think it has been, gosh, I've been here for 20 years, and it's been about 30-plus years. So we started with a single aquatic biologist who wore many hats and did many things. And then I was the second aquatic biologist that came on board, again, with the riverine and the um, the, the invertebrate stuff, and then we added on Rick, who does the, the wetland work. So 30-some years, so going from, in the last 20 years, going from one aquatic biologist to three. So that gives you an idea of how much we're growing, and, and we're pretty proud of that. 
Andy, how, again, how long have you been at Bemidji State now? I've been there nine years. I would assume in an area where fishing is a very popular activity, the fishing classes are very popular even maybe among those who aren't going into biology of any sort. Yeah, for sure. Um, I teach a summer class called Ethics of Fish and Wildlife, and that's a really fun class about um, like the pain and suffering that organisms have and whether we should use barbless hooks or not. And It even touches on the hunting aspects such as like trapping and uh, archery, and I get a lot of that's a, a general education course, so I get lots of interest in that over the summer uh, from students all, across all majors. And, Rick, uh, wetlands is a, is a phrase we hear a lot up here, a very important part of the uh, landscape in Minnesota. Certainly, even when you're thinking ducks and waterfowl, I mean, wetlands are something that uh, I talk to Ducks Unlimited people about all the time. Tell me a little bit about uh, wetlands and, and what are some of the things you're teaching. So, yeah, I mean, if, in regards to uh, being a wetland ecologist, I, I mean, I could not have designed a, a better place to, to settle in and teach. Um, yeah, you know, certainly northern Minnesota, we have, uh, you know, a, a huge number of, of wetlands of varying types from everything from freshwater marshes to the, you know, ombrotrophic bogs. And the diversity around here is just just, just amazing. I mean, it's, it's a wetland ecologist dream. And um, the since um, my position was created here at BSU uh, based on a, an endowment from the Nielsen Cram Foundation and um, where they recognized the importance of, of wetlands in the region and, and wanted to support a a wetlands program, and so we began then this program with with me, and and kind of been, been expanding it with, with other professors as well, in, in part. And um, so, yeah, with with the wetlands, we cover everything from just you know general wetlands ecology to wetland classification. Um, we have some training courses in delineation, um, mapping, identifying and mapping the boundaries of wetlands. Um, I work with you know a number of, of different professors around campus in you know chemistry, environmental studies, um, our geography department with the the GIS mapping program, and um, just try, trying to incorporate um, you know the importance of, of, of wetlands in the larger landscape. Debbie, you mentioned rivers and invertebrates. Um, let's start with rivers. Obviously, rivers are a huge part of the entire world. And, uh, and and certainly here in Minnesota, the Mississippi starts here right in our backyard, and there's many other important rivers, too. Tell us a little bit about rivers and, and, and what got you interested in that. Sure. I, I actually started my, my doctorate work at the University of Louisville, and uh, it's a large river program. And the Ohio River there is pretty darn big. So I fell in love with just really the power of rivers and also the, the concept that Imagine how difficult it would be to live into a, live in a system that is always moving, always moving downstream. And the mechanisms that organisms have to have to kind of deal with that ever-changing, always moving environment. So when it came to uh, becoming an aquatic ecologist and where to go, as Rick said, northern Minnesota is kind of a dream. And it's really interesting to see how rivers are quite different here, just very much at the headwaters, more of a small stream environment, and then moving downstream. It's really quite interesting. One of the aspects of uh, my work that I really, really enjoy is talking about impoundments and dams and how they've really changed rivering flow, how they've fundamentally changed the system from being a unidirectional flow environment to one of more slow-moving lakes when you look at impoundments and dams. 
And so um, rivers are really quite, quite interesting, at least I think so. Talk a little bit about invertebrates. Um, You mentioned some of them, but do you get involved at all with aquatic invasive species as part of that? You know, I teach that. I do teach that, but my research doesn't necessarily get into invasive species. There is a caveat. I was really lucky to have a graduate student a few years ago who did some work on Lake Bemidji because I kind of had an idea, or I should say the three of us had an idea, that it wouldn't be a surprise if zebra mussels showed up. And when I came to Bemidji again a couple decades ago, zebra mussels were not even north of St. Cloud, and they've been encroaching and getting here um, fairly quickly. So my graduate student did some work on what Lake Bemidji looks like, the benthic area, the bottom area, um, what populations of organisms were, of invertebrates were, just in case in the event that zebra mussels would show up in Lake Bemidji. That way we can track the changes in this system. And sure enough, as you all know, a couple years ago we started having some zebra mussels popping up, and now it's not unusual at all to see those on the shores of Lake Bemidji. Andy, we've talked a number of times about some of the projects that your students have been involved in. Um, you mentioned that you've got like nine doing some things right now. What are, what are some of the things you guys are doing? Well, we've got a couple of real big ones that have been uh, funded through some of the state agencies. Uh, the, the largest is really a, a muskie diet study. And so I'm actually looking at a document right now on my computer that's related to that. i got an excellent graduate student named Camden Glade on that project, and he's been going around uh, the area lakes sampling diets from largemouth bass, northern pike, muskie, uh, and walleye to see how those diets are similar or how different they are and how those species are interacting. So that's a, that's a really neat project, uh, a fun one where you know, you're handling a lot of fish, actually looking at what those fish are eating and, and seeing how the fish are influencing each other. Another research project that we have going on is a really neat one on Bad Medicine Lake where they're studying some burbot the burbot population there, and we put transmitters in 60 fish, and we've been tracking them for over the past year plus to see where they're moving, where they're spawning, how susceptible those fish are to angling populations and things like that. So some really neat research projects. Another one um, that I'd like to highlight is uh, Alicia Skolte. Uh, She's working on a Sentinel Lakes project. There was a shallow lake down in southern Minnesota that changed from a turbid situation where it's very cloudy and lots of algal populations, and then it switched uh, based on some land management to a clear water phase where there was very clear water and lots of vegetation. And because it was part of the Sentinel Lakes project through the MNDNR, we had data on every trophic level, like zooplankton, the fish data, the plant data. So that's been really neat to watch the things change across all levels of the ecosystem. So those are three that I'd like to highlight. Uh, There's a few others as well, for sure. Rick, anything going on in wetlands that uh, you want to highlight? Yeah, honestly, like like Debbie and Andy, I mean, we're we're involved in, in many different things. Um, you know, just a, a few small projects. Um, I have a graduate student that's been looking at uh, starry stonewort, and um, because it's it's certainly moving into this area as an aquatic invasive um, plant, and so we've looked at you know we've been looking at, at conditions that might help to, to limit its its growth um, and expansion. Um, I've had um, just finished up a project on soil respiration in. Um, small isolated uh, forest wetlands, um, which are, you know, small in, in, in their own, um, you know, singularly, but they, they are just so numerous across the, our landscape with our state and federal forests up here. And, um, you know, so they play a huge role in regards to CO2 emissions um, and um, in regards to organic matter um, storage um, within the soils. 
and um, just finished up a project as well with the Red Lake DNR, um, looking at the data set that they collected a few years ago on macroinvertebrates in shallow uh, lakes uh, up here in, in the north central Minnesota. Um, and then, you know, many other projects too. We've got projects on Bad Medicine Lake as well, looking at water chemistry and the aquatic plants and the algae um, and, and how those change temporally um, on, on that oligotrophic lake and um, so those are just, again, some of the, just a few of the projects that we have going on. Debbie, you mentioned the zebra mussel project that uh, was recently done. Any others going on in the river and invertebrate world right now? There are plenty, not to any that I'm involved in right now. This is probably more information that the audience wants to listen to. But I wear several hats at BSU, and I'm the director of several programs, such as the Community Engagement Council and the Center for Professional Development. So my position is... 50% teaching and 50% other stuff. Okay. So because of that, I've kind of taken a step back on my research, but I'm looking forward to getting back into that as soon as possible. I'll throw this out for anybody to tackle here. How many students currently in the aquatic biology program? Yep, I, I think we just topped 100 um, a year or two ago. And that's going to echo that. really growing over the past few decades. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to echo the, the very same thing. Yeah, we, we have just over 100 now, and um, a few years ago, we, we modified our, our curriculum in the aquatic biology program to include three different tracks, a, uh, a general aquatic systems, a wetlands ecology, and then a, a fishery emphasis. And, um, you know, all three of those, those um, tracks have really been growing. Uh, fisheries, of course, are very popular because of the, you know, with the area, and, but all three of those tracks are continuing to grow and, and expand. We also have a, it's a wonderful problem to have. Our classes are filling up and are many times over full. So we are, the three of us are kind of looking into the future to a point that we might need to add on a fourth aquatic biologist just to handle how many students we are having. Again, wonderful problem to have. It says a lot about what's going on at Bemidji State and, and with you guys. And uh, and I've always, like I said, this first time I've talked with you, Rick, or you, Debbie, but I've talked to Andy for a lot of years, just been impressed with the with the kind of uh, dialogue we've been able to have, I think one of the, the really fascinating things that I've I've really enjoyed talking to Andy about is just how everything works together. The wetlands, the rivers, the lakes, and, and, and biology in general just works together. I find it really fascinating. I, I presume you find it just uh, even more fascinating than I do as a layman. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and the three of us, you know, Debbie, Andy, and myself, we, we work very well together. In fact, we share a lot of students, a lot of research projects. Um, we um, teach, you know, similar courses, and in fact, we often teach the same classes in, in alternating years, sometimes or in different sections. Um, and so, yeah, three of us work really well together. The rest of the biology department as well, um, and a lot of what we do kind of overlaps, you know, not just with the other aquatics, but with, with, like I said, with with the rest of biology and, and other departments um, also. So, um, yeah, I, I think arguably um, the aquatics is such an integral component of of, of life up here. So. It certainly does play a play a, a wide and, and diverse role. Debbie Gilga, Rick Cook, and Andy Hayes, my guests today, all professors of aquatic biology at Bemidji State University. A lot more to talk about with those three later on. But up next, we're going to hear about bass fishing in Florida this time of year. Keith Tuma, outstanding bass angler and braider, is the guest next. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Welcome back to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. I'm Kev Jackson. We're heading over to the Brainerd area to check in with Keith Tuma, 
And we're not going to bury the lead, Keith. Let's get right to it. Keith, you just went to the uh, Bassmaster Open down uh, in Harris Lake area, correct? Correct. Well, first of all, let me say, Kev, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Um, and to the listeners, hello out there. Uh, but, yeah, I was uh, – I, I, to get to the question, um, entered the Bassmaster Southern Open, and it was in Leesburg, Florida, on the Harris Chain of Lakes. And Great little area. <laughs> and you ended up winning the whole thing. I did. Congratulations. Pretty, well, thank you very much. After a pretty, uh, not dismal, but uh, <laughs> I would say mediocre start, um, which I was super proud of, by the way, my my 12 pounds, 6 ounces for five fish. <laughs> but, um, just uh, a lot of learning on day one of the tournament. Um, you know, they always say that you can't win the tournament on day one, but you could certainly lose it. Um, <laughs> I wasn't uh, I wasn't by any stretch out of the out of the competition at that point, but it was a pretty pretty mediocre start. Let's put it that way, as far as tournaments are concerned. We're going to get into your uh, your background in tournament fishing and bass angling in a bit, but as far as Bassmaster Opens go, that was your first. You win it, and you know, now you're going on to the uh, Super Bowl of bass fishing, the the Bassmaster Classic. It uh, it's been a little bit of time now, um, about a week, and it's starting to sink in that yes, I uh, I, I was able to qualify uh, with this win for the 2022 um, Bassmaster Classic, which. <laughs> They haven't announced the lake yet, but I'm pretty darn excited about that. I can't uh, can't kid you one bit. Yeah, I would be too. Unbelievable. Well, what made you decide? Uh, let's give this thing a go. Well, uh, I've been fishing the Minnesota Bass Nation for quite a few years now with my partner Andy Walt, and he and I qualified. Well, we luckied into a qualif- qualifying spot, I should say, this past year, 2020. Uh, got an invite down to the BASS team championship, and it happened to be on the Harris Chain of Lakes. Um, this or this past year, when when we did that, uh, we pulled a second place finish out of that, and then that got us into the fish off for the Bassmaster Classic. And overall, out of the six anglers that did the fish off, Andy Walls came in second place. I ended up fifth, but it was great. Gave me a a little taste of just what it would be like if a guy could be successful on, on some of these bigger tournaments. Um, I kind of liked that. It was cool. <laughs> Plus, it, uh, it's always fun to, to dabble your toes in uh, different bodies of water just to expand knowledge and test yourself and all that fun stuff as well. And so you went back to the Harris Chain of Lakes, and you did yourself one, uh, four spots better, got up to first uh, tell us a little bit, first of all, of the about the Harris Chain of Lakes and uh, what your successful uh, championship involved. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, as, a, as a guy from up north, um, we fish a lot of grass lakes up here. There's tons of cover. I mean, we've got it all. We've got we've got uh, vegetation. We've got we've got wild rice. Obviously, there's wood. There's rock. There's just everything up here. Um, same stuff down there except they've got cypress trees they've got kissimmee grass they've got hydrilla um there's it's just it's similar but yet everything down there the big lily pads that'll stop your boat if you run into them in the trolling water which is crazy plus they've got alligators that's really fun too um anyway there's just so much that looks fishy down there so you you gotta have uh Enough time to sort out where you think you're going to feel the most comfortable. I felt most comfortable offshore. Um, so I was targeting offshore hydrilla in about that five to seven feet of water, five to eight feet of water range. 
And uh, what it boiled down to uh, was a chatterbait, uh, which we throw, I throw a lot of uh, chatterbaits up in this area. It's good times. It's a pretty, uh, pretty consistent way to catch fish when they're dialed in on it. You said you got off to a slow start. What, uh, what seemed to turn it for you? Um, well, actually just figuring out what the fish were going to bite on. Um, in practice, I had found a couple of different patterns. Uh, one was targeting uh, floating grass mats that uh, there was minnows in, and the, the bass were pushing the minnows up, and they were busting on them and just having a little feeding frenzy. So it was kind of cool. I figured out a way to make those bass bite. Um, it's always tough competing against live bait, but I was persistent, and I, I could make them bite. Um, the wind came up the day before the tournament. It kind of messed, rearranged, I should say, that area, but that pattern was still going. Um, tried that day one um, in the morning. Ended up getting my partner got a fish out of it. I got a fish. And then uh, that shut down. Uh, when the sun came up, it just, uh, for some reason, it just didn't want to play anymore. The fish were still there. They were still doing the same thing. It was just really difficult to get them to bite. So I had marked this other spot in practice. Um, never wet a line there in practice. Just marked it all out, laid it out. Knew exactly how I wanted to tackle it, what it looked like. It was the best-looking hydrial I had found. Uh, decided, let's go pre-fishing. I have two fish in the boat. My co-angler at the time had a limit of three fish. I said, let's go pre-fishing. i got to try and do something different. So I'm dragging a worm. Um, you do that in Florida. I guess that's, <laughs> that's the thing to do. I couldn't get bit. Uh, within 10 minutes of being over there, my co-angler had tied on a reaction bait, a swim jig with a paddle tail trailer. And he got bit. Um, unfortunately, missed the fish because it looked like it was going to be a decent one. I mean, it was pulling drag in the whole nine yards. Um kind of clued me into, all right, these fish are on a bait pattern out here, out here um, or like a bait fish pattern, so I need to be throwing something that's uh, that's moving. I picked up the chatterbait rod, and, uh, I mean, it was within a few casts I started getting bit, and I kind of just put it together after that point. I had three spots in that vicinity, um, and it's all within a half a mile of the, uh, of the takeoff. So uh, that was one of my other things that I wanted to try and do was to maximize fishing time, um, in a tournament situation for me, I feel more comfortable if I've, if I've got a line wet most of the time versus running an hour and a half to where I could go get a potential huge bag or, you know, there's just, just decisions that you got to make, um, when in that type of situation. So I chose to stay close and, uh, the area that I chose to stay close on definitely had the, had the right ones and put it together after day one expanded on it day two, and then day three was just an absolute riot. It was a 100% surprise to come in with the 26 pounds. <laughs> how, how much did you win the tournament by? I won by two pounds. Okay, Actually, good. two pounds even. That's a Over, per- uh, Go ahead. I was going to say, that's a, that's a good, solid gap in, in the fishing world. a huge margin. I yeah. came back from, from 13 pounds behind the leader, um, <laughs> and... Uh, the guy that was leading at that time, Alex Weatherall, great dude, um, enjoyed fishing next to him uh, for the hour he was there in the morning and then the probably 45 minutes he was there in the afternoon. Um, he had other stuff in different lakes that he would run to, uh, about an hour and a half worth of driving one way, so three hours round trip. Um, but anyway, see, I was great fishing around him. Uh, but he he was leading the thing after day two. Um, I snuck in with a 10th place qualification, um, and he had 13 pounds on me. So uh, by 
sticking it out and by making good choices, I was able to connect with the right fish that, uh, yeah, gave me a little bit of a bump and then uh, a two-pound cushion on top of that. So, What do you find to be the biggest difference between fishing bass up in our neck of the woods and down in, in the southern climes? Ah, the southern fish are a lot, uh, lot more temperamental when it comes to weather. Um, if the temperature starts dropping, I mean, you can still get them to go. Um, they're just, they're a lot more sensitive. It's almost like their feelings get hurt when it gets a little chilly. <laughs> uh, the bass up here, when it starts getting chilly in the fall, um, man, they put the feed bag on. It's great. <laughs> so, and in the spring, when the water starts warming up here, obviously they're, they're chewing too. Um, I think, I think our bass up here, uh, the northern strain, uh, tend to realize that they've got a, a narrower window to grow and to feed, so they are going to take advantage of all the uh, the warmer weather opportunities that they can to, to get the feeding done. So I think the fishing up here, um, not that it's bad down there by any stretch, we catch, I think, more fish up here. Um, there's days down there, from what I hear, you can have a 100 fish day. You can do that up here as well any day of the week um, if the conditions are right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um it's just it's six of one half a dozen another the fish down there are big um any bite down in, in the florida area southern states could be a 10 pounder um that's what drives a guy it's just that next cast it could be it could be a, a world-class fish you know i mean a 10 plus pounder um up here there's big ones there mm-hmm. really is but uh our northern strain bass just don't uh don't grow quite that big or if they do um or when they do they're just not as plentiful as the southern states i guess so keith, i hope i answered that right oh yeah yeah yeah. no that was <laughs> that's great uh keith tell me a little bit about uh you i mean it's interesting you you mentioned um uh you know you're a northern guy going south but actually you started out down in florida back in the day tell us uh, how you made your way up to brainerd minnesota Oh, boy. I uh, was born in Florida uh, back in 73, 100 years ago. And uh, I, my dad was in into big into bass fishing down there, and he was in a couple of, of tournaments or, or circuits, uh, like uh, like the local bass club type of thing. Um, so he, he got me into bass fishing at a very, very young age. And uh, my grandparents, they, had, they lived in an apartment complex area that had little ponds out behind it. I'd go bass fishing and brim fishing all the time when I'd, when I'd go visit my grandparents. So fishing has always been in the family. We would vacation actually up in uh, in Walker, Minnesota, uh, from Florida. Actually, my parents had done it before they even moved to Florida. Um, they would vacation um, on Leech Lake, and they'd be up walleye fishing, perch fishing, stuff like that. So we would come up from Florida, and we'd do the same. And uh, they liked the area a lot. So they decided in 1980 move up, um, bought a resort on Leech. And uh, ran that for a few years and then got into a different resort with some partners and all that stuff, a little bigger opportunity. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just kind of progressed from there. Um, I learned Leech Lake quite well. Didn't realize that it had bass on it in it for numerous years, which is kind of sad. But <laughs> once I figured that out, I was like, oh, boy, those bass were in trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was kind of fun. But the perch are great. The walleye are great. The pike, the muskie, you know, yeah. all the other all the other fish that are up there, they're there's just a, a wide array of, of fishing opportunity, not only on Leech Lake, but in all the lakes in Minnesota. So it's just it's a great state to live in. And then you guys slid over to the Brainerd area. 
We did. Came down to Brainerd, um, got out of the resorting business, uh, came down to Brainerd, finished up, uh, finished up my high school in Brainerd, and then uh, yeah, just kind of went out on my own, moved to Michigan for a while, um, did some work at a machine shop out there, got into some other ventures, and then moved back to uh, the Brainerd Lakes area and uh, just kind of decided I wanted to plant my roots here, I guess. And you did uh, go to college at Bemidji State, which I have to bring up because the all the true elites go to Bemidji State. Well, it wasn't Bemidji State. It was oh. Northwest Technical College. Well, you know what? It's part of the same family. <laughs> it is. It definitely is. <laughs> so no, it uh, it was it was it was a great place, uh, great place to get an education. And I went for um, automotive machining, you know, back in the day. So yeah, it was good stuff. And of course, you could go fishing. I did actually. <laughs> I imagine you we, probably uh, did. We ice fished when we weren't uh, when we aren't when we weren't out doing tearing up the roads and other fun stuff like that. So. <laughs> All right, oh, Lord. Tell me a little bit about uh, uh, the Brainerd area as far as bass fishing goes. Uh, I mean, I'm sure just like here, um, there's just a ton of opportunities down there. Absolutely, ton of opportunities. Any any one of the lakes, you can certainly find bass. Um, if you can't find the bass, you can find panfish. And honestly, I mean, unless you're unless you're tournament fishing, just get out on the water and have fun, enjoy the nature, and anything that'll tighten the line. Um, there's serious trophy hunters out there, and there's serious trophy sized fish down down here, up there by you, everywhere. Um, but for the most part, it's I don't know. I've I've taken a family sport, if you will, of fishing, and um, I've explored the the competitive side of it. Um, does that take away from the fun fishing? At times, my daughter gets a little frustrated, but <laughs> she's like, "Dad, let's uh, let's stop here. There's a bunch of sunnies biting," and I just have to take a deep breath and realize, okay. And then I put it together that hey, where there's these sunnies and stuff, there's usually predator fish, which would be the bass or the pike or the walleye, and so yeah, uh, by her being in the boat, sort of forces me to slow down and uh, take a different look at certain areas that she wants to play with because, well, it's just not all about me when we're on the boat together. <laughs> <That's right>. so, <laughs> but yeah, there's there's great opportunities. The entire state, um, shoot, any puddle of water is going to have a fish for the most part. So, you know, I've been uh, good friends with the Peterson family of, of Northland Tackle. They've been a great sponsor of of the show here in Bemidji for a long time. Absolutely, yeah. And, of course, they are big bass anglers. They love bass angling. And I always knew there was this core of, and generally really good anglers that were really into bass angling. What I have seen here in the last five years is an explosion of popularity up here in walleye country. More and more people bass angling all the time. I think a lot of that has to do with the, the explosion of high school fishing and competitive fishing. And so... Um, for the for those who like their quiet bass spots, uh, maybe not such great news. But I think for the sport of bass fishing in general, it's great for to see these Minnesota kids getting out there and experiencing it. Absolutely, the the, the sport in general um, has benefited a lot from from the from the introduction of the high school bass fishing competitions. Um, it's great to see the the young kids out there, boys and girls, young men, young women, um, out there competing. Um, in doing something that they absolutely love, um, it's it's fantastic. It's opened up a whole new realm to the to the world of bass fishing, and it's also providing that um, that future interest because when when they're older, when these when the the 
generation that's competing now, 10 years down the road, five years, 15 years, whatever it happens to be, they start having kids. They're going to introduce their kids into this because, well, they did it and it was great. It was fun. It was, it was just a good upbringing. So I think it's going to continue. It's going to help. Um, and I think it's going to take the sport, uh, to a completely different level. Um, as far as number of tournaments that are going to be available, um, which along with the tournaments, I kind of want to touch on this real quick, comes the conservation side of things. As anglers, we want to see the bass get bigger. We want to see them healthier. We want to see them continue to grow and and become more populous in the lakes that we fish. So we're populated. Um, We're going to take care of our our resource. Uh, Obviously, the, the Minnesota DNR is doing a great job in that aspect as well. But us as conservatives and us as, as uh, or conservationists, I should say, um, are doing our part to make sure that the fish are healthy when they go in the live well. Then when we when we release them, they're healthy um, after weigh-ins and all that fun stuff. Our tournament directors in the state they do a great job making sure of all that, keeping records. There's creel studies, um, just all kinds of stuff on a from a a different different aspect, a different look of things that uh, make tournament angling a lot of fun. There's a lot of information that can be gained from it, not just a, hey, I went out and I won a trophy, or hey, I went out and won some money. Hey, we out, we went out and we learned a bunch about this lake, what it has to offer, the potential, um, and we provide the information for a lot of uh, – Oh shoot! I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of necessary information for people in the future that are going to need to look back on that and see where things have gone and how things have progressed. Their recovery. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's all right. We're we're recording this. I can edit this stuff. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Keith, uh, what's up next for Keith Tuma? Well, next, um, taking a little break here. Uh, I've got about three weeks. I've got to work on my boat some, the trailer some. Um, obviously, ordering a little bit more tackle, which is ridiculous, but whatever. <laughs> uh, my next tournament uh, is uh, the next Southern Open, and it's in Dandridge, Tennessee, on uh, April 15th, 16th, and 17th, hopefully. Uh, the, um, so, yeah, on Douglas Lake, actually. So, <laughs> looking forward to that one. After that, uh, the MNBN start up in may so i'm kind of fired up about that somewhere in there i should probably consider doing work or something i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well maybe if you if you win a few more of these uh, maybe that will be your work huh oh boy you know that's a tall order uh, there's some pretty <laughs> healthy know. competition out there <laughs> but we'll definitely take it serious just like we did the harris chain and uh, we'll see how it shakes out i'm uh, I'm, I'm excited about it it's, uh, it's a heck of an opportunity and i'm, I'm glad i was able to take the take advantage of the opportunity for this year and uh, dabble my toes and like I said, I said earlier or in other interviews that this is a baby steps year for me I'm just doing the Southern Open um, I felt comfortable with the Harris Chain of Lakes so I can't blame myself or nobody should be able to blame me for saying hey why doesn't he get into that one he feels comfortable with it do it <laughs> so anyway plus Southern states, it's winter up here, it's warm down there, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, but, yeah, anyway, uh, we'll see how it shakes out. I'm, I'm pretty excited about the opportunity. Okay. Keith, we want to follow you. Uh, how do you how do you follow you in these, those opens? Uh, well, you can go right to Bassmaster.com, um, and during the tournament, you can you can check the uh, – there will be a live weigh-in um, every afternoon, uh, depending on how many flights they have, they usually start the weigh-ins right at 2:45, um, which would be uh, probably Eastern time at that, depending on where we are. Actually, no, this one will be Central. Um, but anyway, 
say at 245, there'll be live weigh-ins. Um, so you can check there. Uh, and then on the final day, if I get to fish that, it would be on BassTrack.com or BassTrack through Bassmaster.com. Um, and they can do live updates uh, as you catch fish or as all the anglers catch fish. Uh, there's a marshal in the boat with you, and they keep track, and you uh, you give your your guesstimated weight of the fish. Apparently, I uh, I underestimate underestimate mine a little bit, but that's all part of the fun too, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, I got to tell you, um, between you and Jeff Gustafson, it's great to have a couple people north of the Mason Dixon line with the Fargo type accents doing well in uh, yeah, in Bassmaster Land. <laughs> There's a bunch of us up out there. Um, you got Seth Fighter, you got Austin Felix. I mean, they're northern boys as well. Um, you know, and obviously Gussie just knocked it out of the park on the Tennessee River. He did a great job. Very proud of him. Keith Tuma is the current king of bass in the Brainerd Lakes area, and we hope he stays that way for a while. Keith, thanks for taking the time. We're going to keep up with you, and uh, we'll be checking in with you a little bit later on this year. Sounds great, Kev. I certainly do appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, and uh, hope to do so more in the future. We're checking in with Steve Sapaniak of Predator Guide Service. Uh, Steve, uh, I know that uh, we talked last week, and, and you've still got a couple weeks left of doing some pike fishing on Mille Lacs, uh, provided the ice stays thick enough. Uh, what's going on over there right now? You know, the ice is thick enough once you get out, Bill, you know, excuse me, Kevin, away right. from shore and everything. Uh, the nice part is um, it's thick enough to move around, have fun. But by the shore, it's a little iffy. I was over there the other day and checking around, and it seems like a lot of the landings, especially the public accesses, Kevin, are are pretty well waterlogged. You know, you can grab a boat, uh, not a boat, I should say, but a canoe, or grab a plank to walk out there. Or better yet, like I was saying last week, Kevin, go to one of the private resorts and everything. They make sure that they're in pretty good shape. They're not going to let people out there with trucks or ATVs to bust them up. It's walking traffic only in most areas. And when you go to a resort, you pay them the 10 bucks. you're guaranteed you're going to have a safe, safe access on, sir, and safe access off. So, yeah, it's well worth it. And the bite's been pretty good, too, for Pike. You can't complain. Where are the, where are the Pike hanging out these days? They're in the weeds, Kevin. They're in the weeds. They love those weeds. It's like a jungle. Just imagine, you know, the weeds being a big forest. The more woods you got and everything, the trees, the more animals you got. And when you look at some of those big weed beds like Vineland Bay, Shabushkin Bay, Wacom Bay, Cove Bay, it's just haven for them, Kevin. And they're all over the place. What's been working real well is uh, quick strike rigs. Small wire hooks, folks, don't go with the heavy, big hooks and everything. They stick out like a sore thumb. Go with a small wire treble hook. Red is a good color because red blends in like MSG and meatloaf. It really does. You can hardly see it underwater. And if you've got a fluorocarbon leader, you just doubled your odds. What you want to do, like I said last week, is hook up one hook in the top lip of the sucker minnow, hook up the other hook just into the side, not through the dorsal fin and have it no more than 18 inches off the bottom. You know, I know I'm repeating myself from last week, but why not? Why not repeat a good technique? It's been going good. People are really doing good. I know of Northern Pikes coming up to 44 inches caught here in the last week, week and a half, and a bunch of 38s to 41s have been taken this week in the areas I know of in fish and everything, and I've heard of bigger fish caught. So definitely fishing the weed beds, inside pockets, you know, points and all that kind of stuff has been good. Always consider fishing those areas, points, pockets, and inside turns. Steve, um, you know they changed the uh, the limits for northern several years ago, and, and you know we've got our, our um, 
limits up here in the north part. Are you a part of that northern tier uh, as far as the northern limits go, or are you a part of that central or eastern tier? I think it's you know I think it's going to be northern. It's hard. It really, Kevin. It's hard to keep up. What's what? Every time <laughs> I go guiding on different lakes, I have to go on Google and figure out what the what the law is. You know, it's been very, very hard and difficult. I know there for the last few years, we were able to take 10 pike off okay. of Black Lake with one over 40 inches. You can still take 10, but I know the inch length is completely different in everything. So I got to be honest with you, it's hard to keep up. I'm not sure where we're at. Sometimes it's like a whirlwind. <laughs> I know. Um, so, but, but rule of thumb for you, I, I know you were very much about keeping the big trophies in the water. Um, but somebody, you know, some people like Northern. I like Northern if I can get the Y bones out. So, um, for those who want to keep Northern, what size do you recommend keeping? If you can keep a Northern Pike of about, uh, honestly, Kevin, I like one about five to eight pounds because it's easy to take the Y bones out then. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but five pound to eight pound is, you know, five, six pound is probably your ideal size for eating. Northern Pike is delicious. I have made probably. In my lifetime, 30, 40 bets with people that it let me fry a walleye up in the same batter, in the same skillet. I'm frying northern pike, and without you taking a look at it when you eat it, I'll bet you any money you won't know the difference. And so far, I have won 99% of the bets that we have made about eating northern pike versus walleye. So, yes, they are very good. They are very good. I mean, they, you know, you, you see them. They're slimy. You know, they're kind of ugly. So people think, ah. But, no, they're delicious fish. You get to the meat. They're a, they're a tasty they're fish. Delicious. They are delicious. In fact, um, years ago, there is a, you might be able to still find it in some of the stores. Go online, folks. Google Fish Cleaning Made Easy. That's Fish Cleaning Made Easy. It is the only DVD that I know of in the United States that shows you how to take the Y bones out of a northern pike with one cut. That's one cut Y bone removal, not three, four, five, six, or seven. Because I know the guy who did it very well, the person's me. I did it on a three-and-a-half-pound northern pike about 12 years ago. And that DVD, we sold as far away as Germany and Hawaii. Now, I know they don't have pike in Hawaii, but I was, you know, happy to send it there. Um, So, yeah, fish cleaning made easy. And what hurt everybody who had DVDs out was uh, YouTube, you know. You can see uh, YouTube, there's a lot of different methods, about three, four, five, six, seven cuts. But so far, I haven't seen anyone with one cut Y-bone removal because we did make a DVD out of it, and it was documented we were the first to do it. That is, uh, I think, probably something a lot of people would be very interested in. Well, I tell you, I think so. I tell you what, Kevin, after we're done, you give me your address and everything, and I, I know i got a couple extra copies. be happy to send you one. Oh, I will do that for sure. Um, so the Northern Bite is good. Um, what else out there? People still doing pan fishing, I presume? Panfish, yes, Kevin. You know, now let's remember everybody, you know, let's classify the perch in the panfish bite. Now, we talked about a technique last week that was just gangbusters for many, many years for us, you know, pounding the bottom with a big heavy weight and then coming back a half hour later and getting, you know, your perch because they love those bloodworms that are in the mud. So, yeah, the perch fishing, Kevin's been doing real well. Do you have to go out to the main basin, eight, nine, seven mile flat? No, you don't have to, but there's a lot of big perch out there. We used to sit right in the middle of Cove Bay. We kept it quiet for about eight years. We'd sit in the middle of Cove Bay, and we would get our, we wouldn't even have our limits of perch. We'd have a five-gallon pail full with maybe 40 of them. That's how big they were. We took perch up to 14 inches. 
The real big ones we threw back. It's like the big sunnies, Kevin, and the big crappies. These are your producers. These are the ones that have the best genes you want to get going. And I'm not talking Levi genes. I'm talking <laughs> genetics. And if you keep releasing the big ones, you're going to have great genetics. If you keep taking the big ones home with you and stocking that freezer, you know, you're not going to have nothing. You're not going to be nothing left. So, yes, the big perch have been doing real well. And um, speaking of a limit and everything, Kevin, I hope you don't mind, but a lot of guys who have never fished before are going on those fishing forums. Like one guy said, um, anyone having good luck catching crappies? He said, I've been getting my limits for the last five days. This is last week on the fishing forum. And another guy chimed in, Kevin, and says, you know you're allowed only one limit. And then all of a sudden, here's 15, 20 other guys. Are you sure you're only allowed one limit? You know, if you don't know what the limits are, folks, don't go out until you learn. Right. Stealing from everybody else. Yeah, you are allowed one possession limit of uh, 10 fish, correct? Yep. Yep. 10 fish for crappies. Uh, used to be 20 fish for sunnies. And it is on many lakes, Kevin, but a lot of lakes have changed. Same with walleyes. You're up northern pike. You're only allowed one limit, whether it's in your freezer, and that's it, you know. So after that limit's gone, go fishing again. You don't have to stockpile up. But uh, back to the bite. The crappie bite's picking up. Isle Bay's been producing pretty good um, over there towards Wacon, having some decent luck and everything, especially late in the evening, early in the morning. Cold Bay's been good. Now, here's something to keep in mind, folks. If you know anybody who has an old wooden dock or wooden pier, you want to go crappie fishing there ASAP. And here's why. Because all the wood and everything, as it gets older, it attracts microorganisms, zooplankton, invertebrates. It attracts, uh, it attracts crustaceans, which attracts crappie minnows. And those crappie minnows just love hanging around those wooden piers. And believe me, if you can get in there early in the morning with electric auger and chop a bunch of holes or drill a bunch of holes, you can have pretty good luck. And we've taken crappies up to 17 inches on Mille Lacs Lake, so that's a nice size fish. Throw them back is the main thing. Okay. Anything else this week? Uh, sun fishing is starting to turn out okay. pretty good. I can't complain about that. Again, they're in the cabbage weeds. Fish anywhere from like 7 feet to 10 feet, 11 feet of cabbage weeds. You're going to find the sunnies. Learn how to read that sonar. You will see them there in the weeds, and that's where they're hanging. Otherwise, it's been a pretty good big time on the big pond. The big pond's been kicking out some nice fish. I can't complain. Uh, people, when you get done fishing, please pick up your trash. You know, it's not up to anyone else. I know most people are good, but I still see a bunch of trash, and that goes for anywhere in the Minnesota. Absolutely. And worth noting, uh, what uh, kind of thickness are you seeing on the ice right now? Main Basin, we still got anywhere from 18 to 24 inches. Good, solid ice. It's right around the edges, Kevin. you got to be careful. And, uh, two, folks, keep this in mind. If you're walking by any island on Mille Lacs Lake or shoreline that's got a point of sand coming out, be careful. That heats up underneath, and it's not as safe ice as you think it would be. So keep that in mind, just like the Rum River and the other rivers that go into Mille Lacs Lake. Give that a long distance of walking room because uh, that uh, that is flowing water, and uh, ice is not safe underneath it. About, uh, you know, seeing the temps we're at and we're only going to get warmer, about how many weeks do you think we're going to be able to keep ice fishing? I'm looking at maybe... Honestly, Kevin, that's a fantastic question. Thank you. I'm thinking of safely maybe two at the most, week and a half to two weeks. Okay. It's that uh, shoreline that's going to go. I uh, did something crazy in my lifetime a couple of times, and I'm not proud of it, but I have hopped ice chunks trying to get back to safe shore. And that's when you say, hey, that's enough, no more. So I try to avoid that. <laughs> okay. Um, 
let's see. I was going to wrap it up with, oh, yes. I mean, we are, if we're going to get on ice fishing, um, we're going to be um, getting ready then for soft water fishing. And for you, that means, you know, a couple months away, all of a sudden it's going to be musky season. Somebody wants to get a, a musky trip set up with you. How do they go about doing that? Great question. Uh, just go to my website, all one word, predatorguideservice.com. You can email me, or I'll give you my email address right now, predatorguideservice at charter.net. That's predatorguideservice at charter.net. Or give me a call, 320-253-7535. That's 320-253-7535. Uh, you know, the last uh, week and a half, I took uh, 14, 15 bookings, so I'm booking quick. You know, being the first muskie guy in Lax Lake, you know, I take great pride in trying to get my people on fish. The biggest problem we have, Kevin, is just take one finger and tap your other shoulder. The light tap, that's what a hit can be. Yeah. And uh, also keep in mind, folks, if you go musky fishing, you've got a good chance of tying into a huge pike. We've taken pike up to 47 inches, and we've taken some last year, a big one, 24 pounds. So, yeah, give me a call. Let's get something lined up, 320-253-7535. If I don't answer, just leave a message. Steve Sapaniak, he's from Predator Guide Service, and he's a great guest of the show. Steve, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. But wait, there is more. We've got a lot more to cover with the aquatic biologist from Bemidji State University. State University is certainly one of the gems of Paul Bunyan country, along with Dovos, lakes, rivers, and woods. And how they tie in together? Well, the wildlife and the aquatic biology program. We've talked wildlife biology in the past. Today, we're talking aquatic biology. We have the three aquatic biologists at Bemidji State University, Rick Cook, Debbie Gilda, and Andy Hayes. We'll pick up the conversation here. Andy, uh, and one of the things that you guys uh, had in the last few years is that hard water laboratory you're able to get out on the lake. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. It's uh, basically a, a giant fish house uh, that was donated through some grants from um, Glacier Fish House. And the foundation really helped us with this process. And, you know, the last couple of years, because of either snow depths or because of COVID, we haven't been able to get it out. But I'm really hoping that uh, next winter, again, we'll be able to get that out in front of Lake Bemidji or in front of uh, Bemidji State University. And we can have uh, some opportunities to get our students out there, either using it for research or for our classes. And we've also uh, collaborated quite a bit with the Headwater Science Center, where they've got some uh, younger students out there and use it just to go fishing or see some of the, you know, cool things that are happening underneath that. So it's just a, a great resource for us to have um, for recruiting events or for research or for our classes. And really thankful that we have that. One of the great selling points, I think, for Bemidji State University to students, whatever field they're going into, I've heard this from recruiters, I've heard this from coaches, the lakes, the woods, the ability to go out and go fishing, go hunting, go on a hike, all that stuff is really a great selling point. For aquatic and wildlife biology, that's not just a great selling point. That's an unbelievable classroom. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we are so lucky that the three of us can open up the back door of Sackass Hall and walk 40 steps, and we have our office, the <laughs> lake. So we will never take that for granted, and I don't think our, our uh, students do either. 
Yeah, and then yeah, just I'm really looking this. forward to next fall again, where we can hopefully be back on campus, and I can spend my whole Thursdays out on the pontoon boat with the students, showing them how to sample, you know, every level of the ecosystem. And it's just an amazing experience for both me and for the students. I just love it so much. Yeah, just to echo that, you know, just a 15-minute drive from campus as well. I mean, we're, you know, gosh, in, in any direction, and we've got between the forest systems, the wetland systems, you know, the streams, the, you know, different aspects of the Mississippi River. I mean, it's just, just sort of an ideal location for this field. I, I think we're all just feel very, just very happy to be up here. You know, Andy touched on it a little bit. I mean, COVID and distance learning is frustrating for anybody in any field, but for a field like yours where it's not all about, but a lot of it's about that hands-on experience, uh, it's got to be even more frustrating. And let me just, just jump in real quick, and it, it certainly has been a challenge. Our fall classes are traditionally very field-heavy. Um, and, and in fact, we're, you know, with our, our labs in particular, we're out in the field almost every week. Um, you know, wetlands lab, we're out all the way through November. Um, and with COVID and the distance learning, it certainly has been a challenge. We've adapted, I think, pretty well in regards to, you know, including videotaping of us out in the field, you know, going through procedures, videotaping in the lab as we're looking at specimens, certainly a lot of other, you know, additional resources on the internet that we've been able to pull from as well. So I think we've adapted, but but it, it certainly doesn't compare to, do, like you're saying, getting out, getting our hands dirty in the field. And, and that is a, a huge component, especially in the fall. In the spring, because of the climate, you know, we certainly slowed down in our in our taking the students out in the field. But, but with Andy's, you know, initiative and, and um, obtaining that hard water lab, that, that really has, has opened the doors for some classwork, you know, on the lake itself as well. We are certainly are very fortunate in being able to adjust some and really looking forward to next fall when we are back out and, and running full capacity in the field. I don't know who will be best to answer this question or even if you, you, you know the information, but I'm kind of curious as to where are the average aquatic biologist students coming from um, and and what drives them into the field? Most of them I'll take a the surrounding area or the cities. We get a lot of students from down there, actually. Debbie, were you going to say something? I was going to say the same thing you were. As usual, we're all like-minded. <laughs> Basically from this area or from the metro, the, those are the two big draws? You know, and recently we've had some out-of-staters, too. We're starting to recruit a little further away because of the quality of the program. Um, and then yeah, I think you had another question about what drives them to the field. You mentioned it earlier in your questions about there's a lot of people in the state that are very passionate about outdoor activities, and I think that they really connect well with the majors that we have. So a lot of them come in, they're waterfowl hunters or anglers or just really like being on the water. I'm going to do a little biography of each of you. Um, we will start with Debbie. Where did you uh, come from and how did you get to Bemidji State? And tell us your journey. My big story? Yeah. I uh, graduated from the University of Louisville and then was recruited by a Dr. Jim Thorpe, who is kind of a kind of a demigod, if you will, in riverine work. And that's where I did my master's and doctorate. And, uh, again, just love, love invertebrates, love moving water. And I applied to Bemidji State University, and I'll be honest with you, when I came up to interview, I knew within 15 minutes of stepping off the plane that this is where I wanted to be. And it was really a wonderful, wonderful decision. I'm thrilled and uh, completely, completely, absolutely intend on retiring from Bemidji State. I know Andy's story, and we'll get to it, but it involves the Packers to some degree, so I'm going to yep. kind of put that off to the end. Uh, Rick, what about you? Well, no Packers here. Okay. Although I grew up in Southern Ohio, so I was a Bengals fan um, growing up. But, yeah, I grew up in Southern Ohio. I um, you know, had a 
four-year degree, Thomas More College, um, bachelor's in biology. Um, sat out for a couple of years uh, working as a chemist in an environmental research or testing lab. Um, went back um, after two or three years in, uh, for my master's at the University of Cincinnati, where I was working on the Ohio River and some of the wetlands associated with the, with the flooding of the Ohio River. And then um, from there, I went down to the University of Louisville, um, working with, with Jim Thorpe uh, initially. And then um, he actually left UofL and ended up working with another professor. But that's where Debbie and I met, and, and you know, we were eventually married there. And so um, so a doctor from University of Louisville uh, came up to northern Minnesota to work with Forest Service with postdoc over in Grand Rapids. And then my position uh, opened up here and, and was fortunate enough to be in the right place, right time, with the right specialty, and and being able to get on with a great bunch of people that are here. Just kind of a roundabout way to, to get up here, but I've always been, you know, outdoorsy, and I've been outdoors more than I have been indoors all my life, and it just seems natural to kind of migrate up here to, to northern Minnesota. We both went to University of Louisville to get our doctorate. We didn't realize we were going to get a spouse in the, uh, <laughs> at the same time. Really well. And Andy, we, you're from actually just down the road and grew up in the Wisconsin area, and I'm, I'm assuming grew up in the outdoors. We've had this conversation before. Oh, for there. sure. Yeah, I was, my father raised me hunting and fishing, you know, so I was very passionate about those things as a child. Grew up 15 minutes from Lambeau Field, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I she said here. I'll say that the Vikings are a, a distant second for me. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I'll give you that, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> in terms of my schooling, I never planned on becoming a professor. It just kind of happened. And so I really like uh, to tell my story to the students as well. Um, I went to Stevens Point, you know, for my undergrad and became a fisheries major there after I was able to go electrofishing on a boat. It, I was hooked after that. Then I just applied for jobs, applied for schools, and got offered a position in Arkansas to uh, study smallmouth bass movement for my master's degree, and, and that just seemed like an awesome opportunity. From there, I went to study brook trout up in the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains in West Virginia, and then I took a, a postdoc in California. So I've been all over the country, um, and in California, I studied Chinook salmon just outside of Yosemite. So that was just a great opportunity to you know, see some cool environments and study some more fish there. And then as soon as I was applying for jobs, I looked up the map here and saw 500 lakes within 50 miles or something like that and saw that the courses I'd be able to teach at Bemidji State and I immediately knew I wanted the position would be a great fit. And Like Debbie said, I anticipate I will be here for the remainder of my career. I can't imagine going anywhere else. I'm going to just throw this out for everybody, and I guess each of you can take it and answer it because I'd like to hear everybody's perspective on it. Uh, we'll start with Andy on this one. And one of the things that I'm asking this for is because of the practical application these majors have, you're not just in the classroom, you're out there seeing this stuff in real time and helping agencies. Look forward the next decade to 20 years. What do you see the biggest challenges being when it comes to aquatic biology and the things you study? And Andy, we'll start with you. The biggest challenges that I see, I think water shortages, issues with water, that's a big one. Climate change for certain and how aquatic biologists can really adapt uh, to those massive changes that are going to occur as a result of the climate change. And then I think the invasive species battle is going to be probably my third. And, and just to see how we really adapt to how these systems change so substantially in combination with the climate changing and these new organisms being in the systems, that's going to be really big issues for us to address in the future. What about you, Debbie? What do you see in your realm? I think invasive species are absolutely going to be one of our, our biggest challenges. As Andy said, with climate change and the fact that we are such a mobile society and we take boats everywhere and take uh, ships everywhere and planes everywhere, uh, invasive species, not just 
aquatic but terrestrial as well are, are really going to allow us to face some challenges and bigger challenges than we ever had before. I also think one of the aspects of riverine science that I'm very interested in is going to keep raising its ugly head, and that's the idea of impoundments. The United States has 84,000 dams in place and those have fundamentally changed what rivers do and how they do it and the organisms that live within that and so i think the idea of continuing to build these dams and even removing these dams really will cause some big problems and uh, some fundamental changes in lodic or riverine systems and rick yeah i could echo uh, two of those and add in a third invasive species certainly is a, is a big one regards to to our wetlands and aquatic systems up here i mean we're facing the you know several invasives uh, moving into the region, it certainly is going to have a, a huge uh, ecological impact as, as they do move through. We try to, to mitigate as much as we can in regards to slowing them down. I think we're successful in that, but there's some that are just going to be unstoppable. So th- those certainly are going to alter our, our ecosystems. Uh, climate change, uh, definitely a big one um, in, in regards to wetlands. Um, you know, the where the trajectory of climate change is going to have a huge um, impact on the loss, uh, additional loss of wetlands, um, you know, as our, with milder winters and less rainfall in the region. So certainly that's going to impact our, our wetland diversity around here. And then the third one I would throw in is just land use changes. I mean, as populations continue to increase, we continue to, to alter um, our landscape. That has a huge impact on water quality, you know, biodiversity in the area, both within wetlands and aquatic systems and, and the terrestrial systems as well. Those are my three big ones, I think, that uh, just to kind of keep in mind, and they're going to be the big focus in the next few decades. We're running out of time, but a couple things I do want to cover before we wrap it up. Uh, students that might be listening to this that are kind of interested a year or two away from heading to college, what courses should they be taking right now at, at the high school level if they want to get into aquatic biology? Math, for me, is what I would say. So Andy says math, and I say uh, communication. Any kind of communication course with oral or written communication is really something that folks in the job market are looking for and will certainly help them in college, regardless of the major they choose. I would certainly continue to push for the sciences as well. You know, I, I think that just comes without saying. But honestly, any courses that, that they're interested in, I mean, it's, the aquatic biology is such a kind of a widespread field and, you know, everything from, you know, communications to industrial technology to the sciences, as much math as you can. Any of those are, are really going to help and you know, kind of help you define your niche within the field. One final thing. We, of course, got a big audience in the Bemidji area of potential students. We are also now on B93 down in Brainerd. So uh, there's the whole Brainerd area and we're podcasting to the world. So you've got a whole bunch of students to give an elevator pitch to right now. Um, Give us your elevator pitch on why we should be coming to Bemidji State University. I'll go. If you want to learn everything you can about aquatic systems from wetlands to rivers to streams and lakes to literally get your hands and your feet and maybe your whole body wet in your study, this really is the place to come. We have three fabulous aquatic biologists that work beautifully together that are very, very invested in student success. And we have the support from our biology department as well as the university. Aquatic biology at Bemidji State University really is the best decision ever. Great job, Debbie. We're still small enough that we get to know the students personally. And so the average class size, even in our, particularly our upper level courses, is around 20 to 30, depending upon which course, you will 
get to know your colleagues here. You'll get to know your professors. You really just pull out a map and look at the area. I mean, you, you know, that that's the biggest selling point is just is the region itself. I'll just add one other thing that we have great connections with the local agencies, and there's lots of hands-on experience with the actual DNR. And Debbie, first steps for students that might be interested in pursuing a degree and, and coming to Bemidji State. Well, the first thing I would do is, of course, contact our admissions office and explore our website, the Aquatic Biology. At Bemidji State has a beautiful website that really will let you know the courses that we teach, who we are, what we do, and how we do it. So I think exploring the website will really give you a good handle on what life at Bemidji State is about. And then, of course, the next step would be to contact our admissions office. Andy, i got to ask you this. Uh, do the power couple, do they ever gang up on you? <laughs> no, they do not. <laughs> Every time no, we, they, they, we work very well together. <laughs> All right. Dr. Andrew Hafes, Dr. Richard Cook, and Dr. Debbie Gilda, they are professors of biology and aquatic biology at Bemidji State University. Great conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time to share uh, what's going on at the Aquatic Biology Department of Bemidji State today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks again to the BSU crew for joining us and also to Keith Tuma, outstanding bass angler in the Brainerd area. Hope he does well in his next Bassmaster Open. Don't forget to check us out on uh, don't forget to check us out on social media, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Thank you for joining us. We'll do it all again next week. This has been Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We'll find out more about the great outdoors in Paul Bunyan Country next week. I'm Kev Jackson. Thanks for joining us. Roger that. Now you can unlock in-game rewards like only Dew can. Wait, what rewards? A Dew Operator Skin. Man, I love Operator Skins. Dual double XP, and even Call of Duty points. You're kidding me. Double XP and Call of Duty points? This is incredible. I can't believe it. Soldier, get a hold of yourself. Oh, roger that. Look for specially marked packaging and visit mtndewgaming.com for details and restrictions. Open to U.S. Residence 17+. Plus. Call of Duty points available on 12 and 24 best and free 20 and 23.